This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story by Frank O'Connor, The Masculine Principle, which was published in The New Yorker in 1950. You may be engaged to me, but you're going to marry my dad. I might do worse, replied Jim in his stolid way. Wait till he comes to live with us, said Fanny. He's too interested in that house to be healthy. The story was chosen by Anne Enright, the first fiction laureate of Ireland, whose most recent novel, The Green Road, came out last year. She's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 2000. Hi, Anne. Hi, hi. So when we talked about this, you had just finished writing an essay on Maeve Brennan, and you were going back and forth as to whether you wanted to read a Brennan story or a Frank O'Connor story. What was at the root of that decision? I think I chose the uh, Frank O'Connor not as a writer, but as a, a reader. You know, Maeve Brennan, there's been a great and wonderful project of reclamation where we're looking again at her work. But I read Frank O'Connor as a child and Frank O'Connor is inside my head. I find it very difficult to stand outside of his work. I chose this story because it's good fun and because it reads so easily. You know, he uses and works that oral tradition that you're still seeing. There's big blasts of Roddy Doyle coming out. <laughs> <laughs> there are other writers that you recognise from the contemporary scene who owe so much to Frank O'Connor. But when you say you read Frank O'Connor as a child, do you mean in school? The First Confession was a story on our exam syllabus when I was about 13. But no, the books were in the house. My mother would have had My Oedipus Complex, that orange penguin, with that hugely intriguing title, My Oedipus Complex and other stories. And then my sister, who is an unspecified number of years older than me, uh, <laughs> <laughs> brought into the house the penguin in 1971, I think, the Madeleine Mousnies. It was a Macmillan edition with a picture of houses in Cork on it. And anyway, there were a little row of Frank O'Connors on her shelves. So it went through two generations. Yeah. And I would have read them certainly before I was 10 and then <laughs> then afterwards yeah. when I was 13 or 14. I find it very hard to judge Frank O'Connor as a result. You know, the national narrative, you know, of the Civil War stories isn't particularly my narrative. I hit it at a time when my sisters were starting to go out dating. I was the third of three sisters and Frank O'Connor did great dating and mating stories. <laughs> and it's one of those that I've chosen today. It's fascinating that in the space of, you know, 20, 25 years, a lot of his stories went from being banned in Ireland to being on the school syllabus. Well, certain of them were on the school syllabus. This book was banned. It came out in 1951 as Traveller's Samples. And it was banned possibly because of the story, The Masculine Principle, mm -hmm. which is a tough story and salutary to read as a young teenager. Frank O'Connor published more than 40 stories in The New Yorker from the 40s through to the 60s. Do you think that this one, I mean, you picked it because it relates to the dating that was happening around you at the time, but do you think that it's typical of his work? Well, there are various strands or the kind of peasant stories. Um, I want to neutralise that term and reclaim it sometimes mm -hmm. <laughs> and own, luck. own it. <laughs> so there's a bit of a considerable amount of peasant in me. So, but, um, and then there are 16 stories about priests. 
And Frank O'Connor liked priests, unlike Maeve Brennan. (laughs) (laughs) When she imagined Frank O'Connor, she imagined him in the confession box in St. Patrick's Cathedral. Somebody wrote to the New Yorker saying, why why is she not writing? And she wrote a fake letter back saying, I'm sorry to have to inform you that Miss Brennan has died. She shot herself in the back of the head with the use of a hand mirror in St. Patrick's Cathedral at the bottom of the altar steps and Frank O'Connor was in the confession box as he usually is every (laughs) afternoon. Um, And, you know, one interpretation was that he was eavesdropping or or picking up people's stories but the other idea is that there was a big streak of priestliness in O'Connor himself. He identified very strongly with priests. He said that the writer's vocation was somewhat similar to the priestly vocation. He was hugely interested in loneliness. He thought it was both an engine for the short story itself but also it comes through in the work about love as a form of loneliness. They're the kind of stories that could only have been told in a country that didn't have divorce. I mean, one of the most beguiling and annoying things about O'Connor is how he has his cake and eats it, really. (laughs) There is this wonderful paternalism involved where these dreadful things that happen happen both with charm and with an okay sort of ending because the men who are in charge of the situation very much like the women who are involved. It was a very benign patriarchy is at work in O'Connor's stories. And one of the attractive things to a young reader is how the women in his stories have so much personality and character. All the characters have character. He's not involved in kind of draining the world of affect, you know. He's all about connection and the companionability of a good story well told. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. Now here's Anne Enright, reading The Masculine Principle by Frank O'Connor. The Masculine Principle The Ryans had a small house on the avenue. The old man was a building contractor in a tiny way of business in Cork. His wife had died ten years before and left him with three daughters, Mal, Fanny and Bridget. Three goddesses. Old Ryan never knew how lucky he was and continued to lament the son he had three times aimed at. But there was hardly a romantic adolescent boy in the neighbourhood who didn't raise his cap to Old Ryan as to the priest, partly in reverence, partly in hopes of impressing his spotty visage on the old man's memory so that one day Ryan would say, who is that charming chap from St Joseph's Terrace? And insist on having him to tea. The adolescent boys' mothers were far from sharing that view. If they didn't actually imply that the girls were fast, they made no bones about saying that they were flighty and that old Ryan had only himself to blame for not having married again some respectable, horny-handed widow who would have beaten manners into them. There were too many young fellows around the house altogether for their taste and really, the cut of it was a disgrace. The adolescent boys were horrified and their mothers disillusioned when young Jim Piper got into the clutches of Fanny, the second goddess, or she got into his, according to the way you view it. Neither view would be strictly accurate, for though Fanny shared the family irresponsibility, she had virtues that neither party would have respected. And though Jim might be no Adonis, he was a lad in a thousand. Father Murphy, our parish priest, was a decent poor man, but he had one great weakness. Whatever pretty girls he had banished from his conscious mind had come back to him in his dreams, all disguised as pound notes. 
and the plainer, coarser types took the form of ten-shilling notes. His little weakness was known and laughed at. Once, when Jim was out of his time, Father Murphy thought it would be much better to come to him for his Easter Jews rather than to his mother, who would fight a coal man for sixpence. Jim took out his wallet and produced a ten-shilling note, which, as I say, was associated in Father Murphy's mind with the plainer type of female and caused fastidious shudders to go through him. Mr Piper, he said in a manly tone, I think you could afford a pound. I'm afraid I couldn't, Father, said Jim steadily. Well, I'm sorry, said Father Murphy, leaving him to God and his conscience, but I'm afraid I could not accept that from a tradesman earning good money as you are, Mr Piper. Very well, Father, said Jim, going a bit red, but still behaving with perfect respect. I won't press it on you. So Father Murphy went away and brooded on that plain-looking ten-shilling note till it was invested with all the mysterious grace and charm that Ryan's daughters had for an adolescent boy. After a week, he couldn't stand it any more and came back. I called for the Jews, Mr Piper, he said with a lofty air. I suppose I shall only have to accept your offer, such as it is. At Christmas you will, Father, said Jim stubbornly. The Easter Jews were offered and refused. Father Murphy flushed and almost struck him. I beg your pardon, he said. I was under the impression that I was addressing a Christian. It was more than an old man should be asked to bear. He had been too hasty, too hasty. He went off to brood on it, and the more he brooded, the wilder his schemes became. He thought of having a special collection for the presbytery roof, but he knew the bishop would scarcely countenance it. Bishops weren't what they used to be in his young days. Finally, he lighted on the plan of a charity concert and asked Jim to sing. Now, Jim wasn't much of a singer. Only one in the throes of passion would have thought him a singer at all, and better than Jim would have regarded the request as an honour. But not Jim. Right or wrong, he felt that it was only a roundabout way of getting the dues out of him, and he refused to sing without a fee. The idea of the fee nearly gave Father Murphy a stroke. It was the nearest thing to actual free thinking he had come across, and he felt he understood at last the sort of man Voltaire must have been. A fee. Still, it took character to do what Jim had done, and Fanny couldn't help respecting character. Neither could old Ryan. As a tradesman, he was alarmed at the goings-on of his daughters with all sorts of counter-jumpers and sports coats and flannel bags, and it was a real ease to his mind to have one man around the place with whom he could discuss the bonding of brick and the seasoning of timber. Every week of Jim's life, he brought ten shillings of his wages for Fanny to lodge in her post office account, another old trades custom that Ryan approved of. The other young fellows who came to the house would have been more likely to touch the girls for ten bob. When Jim and Fanny had two hundred, they were going to start building a house of their own, a real masterpiece, according to old Ryan, who would build it for them. You don't know what you're letting yourself in for, Fanny said to Jim. You may be engaged to me, but you're going to marry my dad. I might do worse, replied Jim in his stolid way. Wait till he comes to live with us, said Fanny, 
He's too interested in that house to be healthy. Then, one Christmas, Fanny went out to do the shopping with the week's household allowance in her purse, ran into some of the lads in town and started drinking gin. She kept on saying she had all the money in the house and she really must go off and do the shopping, but all the Ryans had a great capacity for discussing what they ought to do without doing it. Coming on to six, Moll, in despair, had to go out and buy what she could locally on tick. When Fanny came back without the shopping done, Moll screamed at her. Fanny gave her lip and then Moll smacked her face. Fanny was a brooding, emotional sort of girl and she went up to her room and wept floods. Jim came up later that evening, a little bit lit up, but the sort of fellow Jim was, the more he had taken, the more his sense of justice was roused. And when Fanny tried to make him take sides against Moll, he refused. God damn it, girl, he drawled. Be reasonable. Moll has all the responsibility of the house on her and you sitting down there drinking with Mick Leary and Ted Kavanagh didn't give a curse about her. Sure, of course the girl was mad. Now, character is all very well in its own place, but Jim didn't always know when it was out of place. As you're so fond of her, you'd better stick to her, snapped Fanny, getting up to go. Oh, said Jim, refusing to be put down by mere temperament. He'd be a lucky man that'd get her. You're not interested in me at all, Jim Piper, said Fanny bitterly. You're interested in my family and you're welcome to them. There was more truth in that than Jim would have been willing to admit, for his own home wasn't all it might have been. Fanny brooded over the quarrel and the day after the holidays in the mood of disillusionment that always follows on the Christmas holidays, feeling that there was no one in the world who loved her. She went to the post office, drew out all Jim's savings, £90, and took the night boat to London. Talk about scandal. The general view of the mothers was that Jim had got out of a cheap at £90. The adolescent boys felt that there was probably another side to the story. The Ryans talked and talked but did nothing, though everyone knew that Fanny had gone to stay with a family called Ronan who had lived up the road when she was a kid. When her name was mentioned, old Ryan would close his eyes and spread his hands in the attitude of a Christian martyr. His only consolation was Jim Piper, who behaved like a son to him. One evening, shortly after Fanny's flight, Jim took him out for a drink and the old man's mind turned to the thought of what had happened to him. He spread his hands like claws and closed them around the place he imagined Fanny's neck to be. <laughs> Have another drink, said Jim with an uneasy laugh. Oh, you'll be paid back, old Ryan said excitedly, slapping his knee. I'll see you're paid back. Ah, you'll do nothing of the sort, growled Jim. You had no responsibility at all for it. Ryan scowled and drew a deep breath at the very idea that he could possibly consider it anything but a debt of honour. After a few weeks, it boiled down to credit that Jim would receive on the house he'd built when he found another girl in place of Fanny. But Jim felt he'd had enough of girls. For months after, he was drinking more than he should have been. Then to everyone's astonishment, Fanny came home in a brand new tailor-made with a hat like a hoop on her. Apparently, the 90 quid was spent. The mothers 
quivering with indignation, said the girl had no shame. And even the boys felt uneasily that though a goddess might walk out into the night with someone else's savings, it was something approaching anti-climax for her to return without it. Her father threatened to kill her with his own two hands. But this was largely propaganda for Maul's benefit, because the truth is he was a little bit tired of Maul's high moral tone, which was rather too like that of her mother, without any of the conjugal qualifications. Bridget was glad to see her too because she was doing a strong line with a bank clerk and Moll chaperoned them ferociously. The reason was that Moll had contracted a regular, a sedate fellow called Considine who worked the drapery and drapers being the devil and all for respectability, Moll was taking no chances. For a month she wouldn't leave Bridget alone with Fanny for fear Fanny might corrupt her. And whatever confidences Bridget got from her sister she had to get in other people's houses. Bridget felt this was uncalled for, considering some of Moll's goings-on with her previous bloke, which she thought nobody knew about except the bloke himself. Then one spring evening at the cross, just as Fanny was getting onto the tram, who should get off it but Jim Piper? He raised his hat, and Fanny, taken aback, stood and stared at him defiantly, waiting for him to begin hostilities. Hello, Fan. He said, awkwardly. Hello, replied Fanny in a choking voice. Home for a holiday, he asked. No, for good, she replied. Go on, said Jim, trying to make conversation. Homesick. For God's sake, she whispered in an exasperated tone. Come on away, somewhere we won't be watched. They went off together up Montanotti, the suburban road they'd often taken on their courting nights. They went up Lover's Lane, a long, dark, winding lane with high walls and convenient gateways. It was coming on night, and behind the young leaves, the lamp at the lane's end had been lighted. Then Fanny began to storm hysterically. She said it was all Jim's fault for not standing up for her, that he knew she was heart-scalded at home and sided with her family against her. From the way she went on, it seemed that Jim was the one who'd gone off with the savings. He listened with a foolish smile until she'd talked herself out. Well, anyway, he said, I hope you enjoyed yourself. I did not enjoy myself, she replied quietly and bitterly. I only meant to take my fare and send you back the whole thing when I got a job, but they kept cadging and cadging till it all went on me. I all but threw myself into the river. Well, he said, what's done is done, and we can be thankful twasn't worse. After that, they continued to walk out together, only as things turned out later, they didn't confine themselves to walking. For one evening, Fanny broke the news to him that she was going to have a baby. She sounded awfully tough about it. They were lying in a field overlooking the valley of the city with the long shadows of the trees all around them. Jim was embarrassed and laughed. That's a shock, all right, he said soberly. What can you do? Oh, I suppose I'll go back to Ronan's till it's over, she replied lightly. I suppose he'll have to, Jim said broodingly. We couldn't afford to rush into anything now. They said nothing more for a while, and then Fanny got up and brushed herself and they crossed the fence into the lane. 
I suppose that was why you led me up the garden path like this, she said at last. Oh, be God, Fan, Jim said warmly. I led you up no path. You wanted to get your own back on me for pinching the money, she went on in the same tone of chagrin. We're quits now, if that's any satisfaction to you. I didn't want to get my own back at all, he said indignantly. You had more experience of that than I ever had, Fan. Who told you that? She asked quickly. No one told me, he said gloomily. I knew. Things grew a little clearer in her mind. Never once had it occurred to her that Jim would know that what had sent her flying back to Cork was not the loss of the money, but a silly love affair, begun in a mood of braggadocio and continued till it got on her nerves. Her only satisfaction now was that Whatever advantage Jim had taken of it, he had been deeply hurt. I had, she said bitterly, but never with a cowardly scut that threw it in my face after. Then she went off, half walking, half running down the lane in the twilight. When her father knew, he covered his face with his hands. If it had been anyone else, he would have gone out and killed him. So he said anyway. But how could he attack a boy who'd already been robbed? Moll had no such compunction. She was now engaged to the Draper's Clark and though he was broad-minded enough as Draper's Clarks go, she didn't want to give him anything to be broad-minded about. She called it Jim's and had it out with his mother, an old trooper, whose only comment was that Fanny should think herself lucky not to have got pneumonia as well. Encourage her son to marry a trollop who had already made away with ninety pounds that should have come to her. Did Moll think she was mad? Jim came in while the argument raged and hung up his hat in embarrassment. You know what I came about, Jim, said Moll. If I don't, I can guess, Jim said with a smile. The girl has no mother, said Moll. If she hasn't, she is a damn good substitute, said Jim. I never said otherwise. You will marry her, won't you, Jim? Moll said. I can't, Moll, he replied, raising his voice. I might be able to afford it in a year or two, but I can't do it now. A year or two will be too late, Jim, cried Moll. A girl in her state can well afford to do without a house, but she can't do without a husband. And start off in a furnished room with a kid, said Jim, scowling. I saw too many do it, Moll, and I'm not going to do it. That's all about it. She said she'd go to London. But how can we afford to send her to London, Jim? Moll said with exasperation. You know how much we have coming in. I'll pay my fair share of that, said Jim. A more fool you are, bawled his mother. A girl like that, that might be anyone's. Now, mother... Jim said, I'm not denying anything about myself and Fan and I'm not trying to shift the blame either. I'm responsible and I'll pay what's fair, but I will not get married. That's all about it. After that, Moll saw Father Murphy and he promised to get Jim's employer to put the screw on. But it turned out that the employer wasn't so sanguine about his ability to do so. Big our father, he said candidly, I wouldn't mind anyone else. Only Jim is the sort of lad, if he got it into his head that he was being threatened, might walk out on me. And I'd be a long time before I got as good a man. I might talk to him in a friendly way. But Father Murphy knew that to talk in a friendly way to a young fellow who wanted a fee for singing at a church concert was only a waste of breath. 
the next time, Fanny came back from London without any display of finery. The baby was put out to nurse in Rochestown and not referred to again by the family and things went on much as before except that Moll married the draper and Bridget got engaged to the bank clerk. But then a funny thing happened. One autumn evening, Fanny was coming out of a tea shop in Patrick Street when she almost bumped into Jim. It was one of those occasions when anyone is at a disadvantage, when it depends on the weather or the state of your digestion or even, going back farther, what sort of people your parents were, whether or not you salute a person. And the decision of a lifetime has to be taken on the razor's edge without a moment's consideration. Maybe these are the only true decisions. Hello, Jim, she said. Hello, Fan, drawled Jim, raising his hat. How are you getting on? Oh, all right, said Fanny, with the sinking of the heart she would have felt anyway on realising that the decision had been made for better or worse. Going anywhere in particular? he asked doubtfully. No, she replied uneasily, realising the enormous effort of will it would have needed to restore the situation to what it had been a minute before. Next evening, without telling a soul, she met him at the cross and they went out walking again as though nothing had happened. It was several days before it became known and this time there was nobody who was not scandalised. The Ryans were the most scandalised of all. It was all very well for Moll, who had her draper's clerk where he couldn't escape her, but Bridget's bank clerk was still a bit of a toss-up and everyone knew the unmannerly way the banks had of going into their officials' private business. Fellow that let you down like that, said Bridget in disgust. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, said Fanny on the verge of tears, I suppose I let him down too. And damn well he made you pay for it, snapped Bridget. I'm only doing it for little Michael's sake, said Fanny, trying to find some reason for conduct that even she realised was unreasonable. Yes, said Bridget, to make sure he's not an only child. I'm not such a fool, said Fanny. I hope not, said Bridget. Even that much the family didn't dare to hope. Her father refused to speak to her. He was disappointed in her, but he was far more disappointed in Jim, a boy who had once shown signs of character. Up to this, he had believed that it was only daughters who could make one's peace of mind so precarious, but now he began to think that a son might be as bad. When Bridget married, it made things harder for Fanny. It's a lonesome feeling for a girl when the last of her sisters has gone off and their prams have begun to come back. In one way only, it made things easier. Gradually, it began to dawn on old Ryan that this was a very suitable arrangement, a daughter to keep house for him in his old age, who, unlike Moll, could never take a high moral line with him. What would not do at all for a young fellow might do very well for himself. It might be God's holy will to reward him in this way for the trials of the past. Then one evening, while himself and Fanny were having supper, Jim Piper walked in. Ryan looked up and turned his head away. Even Fanny was embarrassed. It wasn't at all like Jim. Won't you sit down, she said. Begar, I don't mind, replied Jim, 
Good evening, Mr. Ryan, he added ceremoniously, but Ryan ignored him. I don't know what the hell is coming over Irish hospitality, said Jim good-naturedly. You say good evening to a man and he won't say good evening back to you. They'll sit there drinking tea with the pot on the hob and not even ask have you a mouth on you. Fanny suddenly realised what was wrong. Jim was drunk as a lord. She'd never seen him like that before. Will you have a cup? Laughing in spite of herself. I had to ask for it, said Jim. The old man drew a deep breath through his nose and then got up and went upstairs, banging the bedroom door behind him. No doubt he was resisting the temptation to kill Jim with his own hands. Jim laughed. Apparently he wasn't aware of the danger he was in. Tell that man come back, he said. I want to invite him to my wedding. When would you say we ought to get married, Fan? I don't know, said Fanny, humouring him. When do you think yourself? I don't give a damn, said Jim, rising. I banked the last of 200 quid today. You can go down to Rochestown tomorrow and bring up little Mike. I can't say fairer. Fanny stood looking at him for a few moments, unable to tell whether it was earnestness or drink. And then she suddenly gave a low moan and ran up the stairs, sobbing. Jim looked after her and collapsed back into his chair and covered his face with his hands. Her father stamped heavily down the stairs and stood at the foot like the hero of a melodrama. What ails her? He snapped. Jim looked up. The same thing that ails me, he said glumly. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. You can start in the house whenever you like. The money is there now. Ryan digested this for several minutes before the beauty of it began to dawn on him. He nodded several times. Then he winked. I think we'd be justified in celebrating the happy event, he said archly. Fanny! He called up the stairs. There was no reply. Fanny! He said peremptorily. We let her alone, he whispered after a moment's pause. I suppose it came as a bit of a shock. You ruffian, he added with another wink at Jim. If I'd have done it 30 years ago, I'd have been master in my own house. That was Anne Enright reading The Masculine Principle by Frank O'Connor. The story appeared in The New Yorker in June of 1950 and was included in O'Connor's collection Traveller's Samples in 1951 and in The Collected Stories, published by Knopf in 1981. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Anne, Jim does a number of things in this story that you could interpret as cruel. What do you think's driving him? Is he trying to get his own back at Fanny, or is he just stubbornly determined that he's not going to get married till he has that 200 pounds? Yeah, O'Connor is really interested in tenacity, as writers probably should be. <laughs> it is the principal writerly virtue. Never mind all the talk of loneliness. It's tenacity <laughs> that gets you to the end of the page. But I think O'Connor is just interested in him as character. And the whole interaction with the priest is about character. And the fact that he doesn't go along with the conventional response to the priest is mirrored in how he doesn't go with the conventional response to his romantic problems, put it that way. What's interesting, because the priest seems to start this process off mm. by saying, I'm not going to accept less money. And O'Connor makes it clear that he thinks of money in the way he would think of women if he were not a priest. <laughs> and and so then Jim turns around and will not accept starting a life with less money. Do you think that there's meant to be a mirror there or an echo? I absolutely do. And and it's possibly one of the reasons that the book got banned was that such a thing might be said that a priest could translate sex into cash. I mean, yeah. because that's very close to prostitution, although it's all in his head, you know. <laughs> but the fact that money is the engine of much that happens is really also interesting because the Irish national myth did not involve such greed and corruption. And Jim has his own kind of nobility, but it is, it's fiscal, which is really mm -hmm. quite unusual, that he would hang on to the economic reality rather than have some sort of lyrical, emotional kind of response. Money is hugely important to people and it's underwritten in the short story for sure. The short story form doesn't really seem large enough to contain such mundane social realities. You spoke earlier about this idea of the benign patriarchy in... Um O'Connor. And, you know, this is not at all a feminist story. Fanny is made to suffer for her one attempt at independence. Let's put it that way. Well, she stole the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to be free. Everyone was being boring. Yeah, yeah. Um, she acts out and then she's rather overpunished. Yeah. In a way. Well, that's what sex does. You know, it produces children. <laughs> and it's a very, you might call it a sentence. It's a very long sentence. <laughs> I don't know if punishment is, is the word. The punishment is in the delay. I think in real life, Fanny would have been hurt beyond measure. And there wouldn't have been a reconciliation. But in the story, there's a reconciliation. And the effort that O'Connor puts into containing this terrible, harsh story in a kind of benign frame and making it better again is really kind of 
but not successfully making it better because Jim waits too long. That in itself is a great theme, you know. Too long a sacrifice makes a stone of the heart. Or Well, what, you know, he, what he says at the end, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Yeah. And the other half of that proverb is, when the desire cometh, it is the tree of life. Yes. So... Do you think the implication is that all's well that ends well, you know, that this will be okay now that they are going to get married? I think a writer like O'Connor is interested in human accommodations, you know, that they mm-hmm. would make accommodations, mm-hmm. but that this, whatever it is, the scar, the problem, whatever it is, might linger for a bit. It's funny, you know, that there's a kind of element of hokum in the story and of melodrama and of a tale well told. And he uses the word melodrama himself at the end of it all. It's like something that could appear on a stage, except that these realities were not the realities that could appear on an Irish page or stage at the time. If you compare it to The Snapper by Roddy Doyle, then later, where all of these threads are untied somehow. There's no implication that the girl has to marry the ghastly man who made her pregnant and the father's relationship with the, you know, is all changed and not contained and not tied up at the end in the same way. O'Connor is forcing his characters back into a conventional kind of pot that they've tried to escape from. Yeah. You know, they're breaking the mould and he's pushing them back into the mould and you can feel the sense of entrapment and escape. You can feel that agitation and unease in, in the whole project of the story. That's interesting you, that you bring up the dramatic nature of it because we spoke off the air about the fact that this story was said to be his version of The Taming of the Shrew and that at a certain point of play was supposed to be on Broadway based on this story, though, though mysteriously relocated to Staten Island. Um, <laughs> there's something about that ending that feels staged. This is the grand finale. Everything is going to end with a marriage. In yes, a way. like all good plays, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe all good stories, perhaps as well as the social conventions, there are the literary conventions that trap our characters and that they're trying to escape from. And resolution is something that the short story, this long short story, requires this, perhaps a different kind of resolution, you know, because so many things happen. There are many events in it and, and it needs a kind of life-sized resolution. And the, and the need to end the story is, is something we all have to respect, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> the Taming of the Shrew comparison seems apt to me. I, I feel as though throughout this story, Jim is... Perhaps he just wants the money. Perhaps he just wants to start life in the perfect way he's envisioned starting a marriage with a house, with this money. But at the same time, he is at every step of the way asserting control. By withholding in this amazing passive aggression. Aggressive withholding way. marriage, but not yeah. sex, you know? Yeah, yeah. But as Talk he about says, having, quite your, having your bitterly. cake and eating it too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and quite bitterly, it's all her fault because she's already been there, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's so harsh. <laughs> so harsh. And at the same time, jolly. At the same time, there's a great belief in human nature there somehow, or that yeah. people like each other well enough, particularly within the family structure. The father is, as he mimes strangling his daughter with his bare hands, but he only mimes it. And then he's quite pleased that he's got a kind of morally broken human being to make his tea. To keep house. <laughs> but there is one small a line in there about Jim who comes from a family that he isn't particularly happy in or proud of and that it is the family that attracts him 
as much as anything else, and the father. Which makes and, Fanny very bitter. Yeah, and it's so it's dynastic. And the sex is slightly coincidental in all of that. The father-son relationship is as nearly as important as the romantic relationship there. I mean, it's interesting also how the story is placed in the labouring and working classes in Cork City, that slight working beyond the edges of respectability, which is so unlike Joyce's Dubliners or Maeve Brennan in The Springs of Affection, where respectability has closed down relationships and possibilities, that there's still enough kind of broken life available outside middle class respectability. Though Fanny, at least, is very aware of people talking about them and looking at them and yeah. she wants to get out of sight. Or to be in a great hat. <laughs> <laughs> and a tailored suit. And a tailored suit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that group cruelty is available but not overplayed one way or the other. There's a great feeling of gossip, which is also a feeling of connection. You don't get the sense that Fanny is horribly excluded or shamed. You know, she's not thrown out. Yeah, she just slightly endangers her sister's relationships. She, she does endanger the sister's relationships, actually. But that's possibly a kind of shadow play rather than reality. I mean, who knows? I don't know. Perhaps if you're you had a fallen sister, you couldn't marry a guy in the bank. O'Connor revised his stories always and often rewrote extensively. And the version of this story that appeared in the collected stories years later is quite different from the version that appeared in the magazine in 1950. But a lot more is sort of spelled out and articulated. It's a lot longer. But one thing that was interesting, to me at least, was that Almost all of the names were changed. Fanny becomes Evelyn, Bridget becomes Joan, the family's the Rileys instead of the Ryans. Name changes I can't make much sense of, really, but one constant, which is Jim Piper. And that made me wonder if Piper was supposed to be carrying some kind of symbolic weight, as in, uh, you know, you have to pay the Piper. Ah. Or, or he's a, a Pied Piper that she sort of follows behind. Yeah, well, Father Murphy, in this story, Father Murphy becomes Father Ring. Father Murphy is, of old Kilcormack, is in a song about the... So 1798, the rising in Wexford, Father Murphy from old Kilcormack is in the Heather Blazing, that song. And the piper might have some connection to that. I can see why he might have rewritten as I was chewing through some of these ginormous great sentences. <laughs> but I think he just added more of them. Impossibly, you know, he really rolls it. He really is dancing on a sprung floor, you know. Some writers write like they're building something. He's really all about movement and play and it's, it's kind of wonderful. But there are a few dangling things you can feel that he could have kneaded the dough a little bit. There were things that he could have worked out of the text to me, adding in sounds like unease about the subject matter. You know, you add in if you want to get a bit explainy. Yes, you know? he gets a bit explainy. And I actually, naturally, because I'm an editor, I prefer this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this tighter, shorter version where mm-hmm. you have to work things out. One thing, he wrote this story in 1950. He was 47 at the time. I wondered why he was looking back at this early stage of life, this sort of dating 
period, you know, before life has begun, really. Yeah, he also wrote in, in that collection, the first confession was in that as well. I think The New Yorker had a lot to answer for because there are childhood memoirs and childhood recollections, which was a kind of style of the magazine at, mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. The name of the writer came at the end and there was no way of telling whether it was a short story or a memoir. And so some of the pieces he had just hazed the difference between memoir, like my first confession, and and these d- dating stories. I think he may have been between marriages, was he? Well, one was ending and the, yeah. the second one was probably looming. And then in 1952, he came to America with his new wife yeah. for a different life. So, yeah, a huge concern with monogamy, mm-hmm. which was overwhelmingly the Irish mode of the time and he was breaking out of that I'm only venturing I don't know Do you think Fanny has a decent life ahead of her? Do you think she loves Jim still? You know I I think women (laughs) didn't really start having good lives (laughs) until maybe maybe 1983 (laughs) certainly 1950 you know you wonder why women's voices weren't heard in Ireland and they really weren't heard and there's a huge deafness in the tradition to the female voice and I think the reason they weren't heard was they were always crying you know There was no or complaining. Money. They're always complaining and crying and sex was a problem, babies were a problem. No money, no money, no money, no money ever. So they were always just at the uh, men in their lives. And um, so therefore, editorially speaking, who is going to have that kind of whiny, complaining, naggy, girlfriendy, pregnancy voice in, um, <laughs> <laughs> in their anthologies or in their books? And, and that's why women were literally not unheard for decades. So whether she was happy or not, I don't know. I think Mal, you know, it's great. It's not a question of happiness with Mal. It's a question of having the right life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I like that about that character. It's interesting that the little boy, Michael, is given Frank O'Connor's actual name, which was Michael. Later, in the later version, he changes it to Owen, which was his son's name. Yeah, I always have a problem. I have a problem with male Irish names. There are so few of them. <laughs> I, I, I remember once texting a number of girlfriends saying, I need a really sexy Irish name for a man. There's silence in return. <laughs> but yeah, but also O'Connor's own family was not a respectable family. His father was often absent, often drunk. He was an only child, which is kind of unheard of, and a late child. So it wasn't the meat and two veg that you kind of associate with the Irish family. You can see why he might uh, sympathise with this little boy sent off to indeed to wet nurse in Rochestown. Yeah, if you believe that. <laughs> because I read O'Connor so young, I, I find it hard to get outside of the work to see which is more or less important or more or less significant. And I do like shaking the bag a bit sometimes to see what comes up these days, you know, all the stories are good. Some of them are more or less dated. And as Ireland changes, some stories rise to, you know, and I think this is one of them because of the the content. Do you think there was a progression over time with him? Do you think his work changed? There are so many stories. There are. And I'd have to trace that really carefully and cautiously. I mean, as I go through the archives I see more and more what the stories were beside and what stories were with them in in the 1950s and later. And that he 
to me, performed a kind of Irishness, but he did it extraordinarily well. With him in the Irish stable in the New York at the time were Benedict Kiley, Mary Lavin, Walter Macken, later John McGahern. And McGahern is the toughest of the lot of them. But there was in Kiley and Macken, who were also writers that I would have been familiar with as a child, there was a kind of performative charm, a surface kind of endearing thing going on, a very accented voice. Maybe the idea of performing Irishness for the rest of the world rather than performing it for the Irish. Well, that was the accusation. And and Ireland always got into a great sort of snarl about authenticity and fraudulence, which doesn't move me one way or the other. I just feel that the language can become too lyrical for lasting value. You know what I mean? That sound and musicality, the famous musicality of Irish prose becomes detached from sense because it is a kind of performance. And what O'Connor is doing is rooting that performative oral tradition in felt life. And that's one of the reasons that the Irishness is neither here nor there and the stories endure. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you. Frank O'Connor, who died in 1966 at the age of 62, was the author of two novels and 11 short story collections, including Guests of the Nation, The Common Chord, and Domestic Relations. An Everyman edition of his work, The Best of Frank O'Connor, was published in 2009. Anne Enright is the first fiction laureate of Ireland. She's published six novels, including The Green Road and The Gathering, which won the Man Booker Prize in 2007, and three collections of short stories, most recently Yesterday's Weather, which was published in 2009. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. If you enjoy the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, you may also enjoy our new podcast, The Author's Voice, New Fiction from The New Yorker. On The Author's Voice, you'll hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find The Author's Voice on iTunes or at newyorker.com. You can also hear readings of New Yorker fiction online and in the digital edition of the magazine, available at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>